Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and today I'm very excited to introduce our guest, Arash Madani of Sportsnet, to come on and talk about his career in sports journalism, to talk a bit about the Blue Jays, some tennis, and his love for the Vikings, but more importantly, his love for Kirk Cousins and Aaron Rodgers. Uh, how's it going, Arash? Thank you so I'm much. Well. I'm well. Alex, we are on the right foot, and then you brought up the two most insufferable figures in sports so yeah 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 no 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 i know uh through your uh great uh twitter exchanges and uh that uh you have uh, a great affinity for aaron Rodgers, especially but both of them yeah yes give me nice one himself yeah um so i just wanted to first talk about where does your love of sports come from i guess i just grew up in it man um I grew up in Truro, Nova Scotia, a small town about an hour from Halifax, and uh, sports was kind of always done in the house, and I guess by osmosis, and then played a bunch growing up, so it's always kind of been there, and I guess it was somewhere around, maybe around high school that I realized I wasn't going to be Roger Federer or Magic Johnson, so I had to figure out what the heck I was going to do, and I thought this was the next best thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've become very, 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 very fortunate um, that my career and my hobbies and my passions have all kind of intersected into mm-hmm. this crazy little industry that uh, that I've chosen. When did you kind? Of, when did you first start thinking that you might want to pursue a career in sports journalism? Probably high school. Okay. Uh, towards the end of high school, started getting involved in it and. Um, at the time, my hometown had a daily newspaper. It's now a weekly. Mm-hmm. As the demise of the print business continues, yeah. um, got involved, got a summer internship there, doing everything, Alex, from provincial and federal elections. I did, I did a few oh. summers at the Truro Daily News. Everything from provincial and federal elections to the Tulip Festival and the Bluegrass Festival and uh, lemonade stands um, and all things in between. Mm-hmm. And... It's funny, like it sounds at times a little hokey, but a lot of the foundational pieces of storytelling and of journalism, I learned doing that because you just had to learn to do everything. You know, (laughs) I did some base, I covered some baseball, did a little bit of hockey, but by the time summer was over, it was just kind of training camp was, was coming together. So, you know, you learn how to source, you learn how to make contacts, you learn how to tell a story, you learn how to interview and all of those kind of set the foundation and the path uh, forward. Mm-hmm. And what was your what was your first job in the industry kind of after high school? And did you go to university for journalism? No, I, I went to Bishop's University, um, a small liberal arts school about an hour and a half from Montreal. And I didn't do journalism. I was a business major, but I was involved with the school paper, broadcast our games on our campus radio station. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, football and basketball, got involved with the athletic department. Uh, my last couple of years at school, I worked with the Sherbrooke Record, one of only two English dailies at the time. Um, so really wanted to do this and went decided on Bishops because sports mattered there. And yeah. I knew that without a journalism program, um, there wouldn't be really a pecking order in terms of who would get to cover the football and basketball teams. And so when we did kind of games on the radio, like I'd have to go in the summertime and 
knock on the doors, literally, of the local mm-hmm. businesses so that they would pay our travel, the, the broadcast over a cell phone line, um, you know, pay the cell phone bill and all those, all those other things. Mm-hmm. And I know through our mutual friend, Jonathan Petridis, that you, you worked OUA basketball. Or your friend than mine. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. That's that's what yeah. he told me too. Right. Uh, uh, and you covered the Ravens with Dave Smart, and obviously that was uh, they were incredible and still are incredible. My alma mater, Carlton Ravens. Uh, what was that experience like, and how did you get from going to Bishops to covering OUA basketball? If people don't know, that's the um, university basketball in in Canada. Well, I got out of Bishops in two thousand and two. Okay. And I remember Dave as an assistant at Carleton. Um, I think Paul Armstrong was the coach. And then Dave's first year as Carleton's head coach, I think was my last year um, at Bishops as a student. And my room, one of my roommates at school um, played on the basketball team and he got no time on the floor. Like <laughs> he was, you know, yeah. Um, and so I remember he got some playing time in a preseason game against Carlton and Dave screaming at one of the players to come over to see him and berating him because my roommate, Dwayne, beat the guy, you know, baseline drive or whatever the heck it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Dave just reiterating what the scouting report was on Dwayne's, you know, and how did you let him beat you? This is the only thing he can do. And I, I kind of looked over and I'm like, how does Dave have a scouting report on Dwayne when Dwayne doesn't even play? Um, <laughs> and so that, that was my first kind of, that's when the light went on of this dude's a little different. And yeah. uh, my first year at Bishops, we went to, we won the national championship in basketball. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. We went to Carleton um, that year where they came to Bishops. Anyway, Bishops beat him by 50. Whoa. And my last year, Carlton beat Bishops by 50. Wow. So in my five years of Bishops, there was a 100-point swing. And to me, the common denominator was this uh, cranky SOB, who is the head coach of, of the Ravens. And so when I graduated from Bishops in 02, a guy I used to broadcast the games with was working at Rogers Community Cable. And he said, hey, man, we broadcast these games. Would you be interested? I was living in Montreal, rented a car on my own dime. I drive back and forth just for the opportunity to get reps, get to do play by play, get to be on television, do all those things. And Dave, Dave really appreciated somebody who was willing to do that for their career. He was great with his time. Wow. Let me yeah. sit in on you know, on meetings with the team and wow. sit in his office and talk shop. Um, and to, and it really helped me understand what kind of goes into it. And so that's, that's how all that kind of went down. Anyway, that year, when we started broadcasting the games, um, that was the year Carlton won its first one. Just a hundred cents. Just to kind of clarify, just so I get the, the time, of the events in, in correct order. So you graduated and then you got Rogers TV and you were covering Dave smart more and more. Is that correct? Like, yeah. That's, so graduated yeah. from bishops in 02. Yeah. June of 02 moved to Montreal, October of 02, November 02 into 
February of 03, I would drive back and forth to broadcast <laughs> Ravens games. Wow. wow. And uh, who was there? Like, God, Jaffeth Mazaruka, Osvaldo Janti, Josh Poirier, Paul Larmond. Um, I think Robbie Smart was there. Mike was definitely a freshman that year. Mm-hmm. So and uh, 20, 20 years later, I still remember their roster. Yeah, yeah. And so you mentioned how you, so were you doing post game interviews or play by play? Was it kind of were play you by play? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 Um, and so how would you say that kind of like what did you do after that? How did you get? I guess my question is how did you get from Rogers and covering Dave Smart to to Sportsnet? Um, so while I was in Montreal, I was working in McGill's athletic department. I was doing the Rogers stuff, living in Montreal. I also um, did some stuff with sports radio there, doing the CFL Alouettes. Mm-hmm. And like three, four weeks into the 04 Renegades season, oh. the Renegades, I got a call on Canada Day. Do you want to come be our PR guy? Our PR guy is leaving. Um, so I moved to Ottawa, did that for a couple of years. Franchise went belly up. But in between, I still did the Rogers stuff, and I hosted a TV show in Rogers on the Renegades. Mm-hmm. I got to A Channel um, in Ottawa, um, RIP. Um, <laughs> I remember watching Sens games on that growing up, yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, and then I uh, went to The Score before it was an app. It was an actual television yeah. network. Did The Senators for one season, did The Flames mm-hmm. for one season. Then the score decided I didn't want reporters anymore. Um, so I moved to Winnipeg. I was for one season, um, the PR guy for the Blue Bombers. And then um, a guy I worked with at the score had moved over to Sportsnet. And he said, hey, we're looking for somebody. Would you be interested in getting back in? I said, sure. Interviewed, auditioned, and it kind of worked out. And uh, I moved to toronto in december of 08 january of 09 been here ever since so alex from august of 07 mm-hmm. to january of 09 whatever that is 16 17 months i lived and worked in ottawa calgary winnipeg and toronto chasing this whatever this is we do for a living yeah I, that's pretty did you have a favorite city to live in and not it's not Winnipeg. Yeah. Not Winnipeg. Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I, I have family there. So I, I know how cold the, the winters get. Um, I guess just to kind of piggyback off your career, I, I, Jonathan, again, mentioned something that I thought really was interesting about how you approach um, post-game interviews and post-match interviews in terms of, he said that you have an initial question and then you don't really focus on having many follow-ups. I don't, maybe I'm misunderstanding what he said, but that's what he said, said was that you have uh, an initial question and then you see where the athlete takes you. And I wanted to know, when did you start doing that? And have you always done that? And why do you think that's so important? Well, I think the most important thing in interviewing is to listen to what the subject has to say the athlete the coach the administrator the politician the whatever it is um if i'm interviewing alex about 
how he decided to get that design over his right shoulder on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> I want to listen to what he says. Um, and so often I find people come into something, to an interview situation, with a list of questions one to 10, and maybe, or one to five, or one to three. And while the subject is answering question one, all that's happening in their head is, I'm trying to remember what question two said. They've memorized the questions. Mm-hmm. And that's not what a conversation is. And that's not what an interview is. And so the more prepared you can be, the more researched you are on the athlete, on the subject, on whatever it is we're talking about, the more comfortable you're going to be in your own skin, the more comfortable you're going to be around the athlete. And sometimes they're going to give you a little bit of an opening, a little bit of a window. And it's our role to, if the window is open just to crack, is to push that window open Mm -hmm. and get more and peel back a layer or two. And if we do that, we're doing our job well. Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't mean don't prepare for the interview. It doesn't mean don't have questions ready. But the most important thing, if you don't get to questions eight, nine, and 10, who cares? Mm-hmm. But if you get more from the subject, you get more from that from that person. That that to me is what a good interview is, and, and what can lead, what can lead, not always, what can lead to success. No, I, I totally agree, and and that's what I've really liked about your post game interviews, especially at the day uh, at Rogers Cup. Sorry, you seem so it's so effortless. It seems, and I wanted to know: Do you still feel? do you feel very confident in that approach? Did that take a long time for you to feel that way in terms of, was it just getting the reps or um, because that's for me, that's my kind of biggest fear doing podcasts is I I really, I completely agree with your way of approaching it, but how do you feel comfortable in that way? You mentioned that you think it's to prepare, but how long did that maybe take for you to feel very comfortable doing interviews? I mean, it's just, to, Alex, it's a constant evolution. Like, you're continuing to kind of tinker and work away at it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's a blessing and a curse for me. I, f- I believe I know what good content is, what a good interview is, what good questions are, what good answers are. I can objectively go back and look at some of my interviews and say, all right, that worked, or that was shit, or you should have done this differently, or think about how I could have approached this one differently. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of keep tinkering away at it. It's almost like a golf swing or, or taking jump shots. It's like, okay, well, yeah, I like that. That felt right. But maybe if I change the grip or maybe if I change my stance or whatever, then my follow through that may affect things. And that's what I just continue to do. I just don't do things one way. Mm-hmm. And the way you would approach a three question walk-off interview is so different than a pregame interview it's so different than a sit-down interview when it's a controlled environment and somebody has a lot more time. And a lot of it is understanding who you're speaking with. Do I have a dynamic with that person? Do I not? Is this person someone who has cards close to the vest? Are they forthcoming? What's a way to get somebody who's a little uneasy to get them at ease? Often in a sit-down interview, or even if I'm going to sit down in a dugout with a Blue Jay player, just as the camera guy is kind of fixing the audio and changing the lights, I'll try and say, I'll try and have just a little bit of banter with them to try and get them loose and at ease. Um, Mm -hmm. 
few weeks ago, we were in Baltimore, um, Labor Day weekend. Kevin Gosman comes in to do a pregame interview. I kind of look at him as our camera guy's getting set up, and he's like, what? And I'm like, can you believe what happened last night? He went to LSU. LSU, Florida State was just crazy. I'm like, would you have gone for two there? And suddenly, the like, we're talking about football, whatever, and suddenly, I mean, Kevin's great to talk to. As yeah, really I heard your interview as much. Suddenly, the dynamic of the way he's sitting, you know, he's like, oh, God, another day, another interview, blah, blah, blah. Suddenly, it just changes. And so often, I find that that little two-minute, one-minute, 30 seconds, whatever that little time period is between the time the player comes over or sits down or stands beside you and the time the red light comes on, that can really kind of set the tone for mm-hmm. where this conversation is going. No, no, that that's you put that very well. Thanks so much for sharing that with me as I uh, am trying to emulate you in, in some respects. So thank you so much. Uh, I wanted to move on just uh, for time to what are some of your more memorable moments? I know you've covered World Series, Stanley Cups, Olympics, Super Bowls. Let me guess at the top of that list would be covering a Viking Super Bowl. I, I'm sure you'd storm into Sportsnet and tell them I'm covering this. Um, I just wanted you to share some of your more memorable moments uh, covering sports. I don't know what's going to happen first. Me winning Lotto Max or the Vikings reaching a Super Bowl in a long time. Um, I've been very fortunate. After Monday. Yeah. 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 I've, I've gotten to do a bunch of things. Um, very, very, very lucky. Uh, the the greatest sporting event I've watched live is the Olympic four by 100 meter track and field relay. Mm-hmm. There are 80,000 I've, I've been lucky enough to be in London and Rio for it. And the stadium, 80,000 people go dead quiet. And then the gun goes off and then like this just crescendo happens. And then the baton gets into Usain Bolt's hands and it's almost like it's a video game. Yeah. I like everyone's running and then this dude just, just takes off and it's, it's electric. Um, so that, that to me is the best sporting event in the wow. world. Um, the most memorable for all the wrong reasons. Okay. 10 years ago. Um, and it's funny because come November, they're going to be playing in the world cup for the first time since 1986. Yep. Yep. Canada's men's soccer team went down to San Pedro Sula, Honduras. Yes. I, I remember you now, now that you're, yep. Continue. Yeah. And, and at the time, San Pedro, I don't know if it still is. San Pedro Sula was the murder capital of the world and Canada needed a draw or a win to advance the hex, the final round of qualifying closest they'd come since 86. And they had just drawn Honduras at home at BMO Field, nil-nil, should have beat them. The whole thing should have been moot. So we fly in on a Sunday night, games on Tuesday. We're on the team plane. Monday we go to training. And again, we're in the murder capital of the world, and all you see is barbed wire. And you're like, oh, oh, okay. So then I want to get a lay of the land, and you know, you come out onto the field at the kind of 50-yard line at center field, and then the tunnel was this dark tin can where the fans just banged on it. And it is so dark other than one little crack of sunlight. And all you see is barbed wire. 
And the next day, it was a national holiday in Honduras, and it was 44 degrees Celsius. And there were 36,000 people in a 32,000 seat stadium. And two hours before the game, the whole place is chanting, Honduras, Honduras. And riot police are walking the track. And fans have bags of piss, and they're throwing it at the Canadian players. And at halftime, it's 4-0 Honduras. Yeah. Yeah. And Kevin McKenna was the acting captain at the time. He's like, at this point, we just got to stop the bleeding. Canada lost eight to one. We get on the plane. The plane lands. Stephen Hart's fired. The coaching staff's gone. That era ends. Yeah. But and I could go on and on. I remember like vivid details of that day. But to me, like there's there's a special shelf mm-hmm. of all the things I've ever done was that day, that trip to Honduras and an eye opener of what soccer in Central America really is. I, I guess just to, to go off that with the men's national team winning and they won in Honduras and I don't know. Yes. And I wanted to know if that, how, what to, are you going to Qatar? Um, and what was, what was it like for you to see that evolution from 2012 to now making the world cup in 2022? See, I, I don't think it's an evolution at all. I think this is just a complete accident and miracle that has happened yeah that alfonso davies's family emigrated here thankfully that jonathan david and company have landed here like the the way this has all come up um and john herdman's got these guys buying in but there was such buy-in from atiba hutchinson and milan borian who were there that day in San Pedro Sula in 2012. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I, I get, honestly, I'm getting chills just thinking about it because in, tw- in the fall of 21, Atiba, or maybe it was early this year, when they won in San Pedro Sula, yeah. Atiba, a smile from ear to ear in the walk-off interview, was like, I never thought this would happen. Yeah, I remember I that. thought we'd get him back. Yeah. And Borean has got these guys believing that they're a band of brothers and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Look, Canada soccer is incompetent. We're seeing it now. Oh, they don't even have a deal with their players before no. the World And the this, just, yeah. Um, so it's um, it's an amazing thing. I covered that cold. Excuse me, it's cold spring day at BMO when the Jamaicans showed up. Yeah, I was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Crazy. the celebration that was on oh. and Herdman's eyes were the size of baseballs and they brought the old guys down and Craig Forrest was in tears and um, talking to the guys on the field, interviewing them for a live post-game show. You saw how much it meant to them. Uh, it was very cool. No, 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 it really was. And um, yeah, I'm very excited. They're, they're playing right now as we speak. So that's kind of cool. They're winning too. So um, I, I wanted, I wanted to uh, just, uh, transition a little bit to the team that you're covering right now in the Toronto Blue Jays. And uh, I just wanted to know how you mentioned, I think on the fan with Ben Ennis about a week or two ago, that you thought that there was something missing with this team, with the, the Blue Jays, and that you didn't think there was a, they, they were going to win the World Series or good enough to win the World Series. Do you still think that? And how do you see them presumably making the postseason, which seems quite probable at this point? Yeah, I think they're going to make the postseason. I think they're capable of a run. I I don't think that outside of the Astros, anybody in the American League is dominant. 
um, you know, at this point, it's who's healthiest and who gets hot. Yeah. Um, the last World Series I covered in person was 2019, the one before COVID, where in late May, Washington was like 12 or 13 games below 500 in late May. And the next thing you know, they're winning a world championship. Um, I think the point I was made with Ben was something felt off. Something just felt disconnected. And I still feel that about this team, except who are you worried about in the American League other than Houston? Nope. So, you know, I think through this kind of micro bubble that we look at, going into last night's game, the Jays were something like 13 and 7 or 14 and 6 in September. The Mariners were 9 and 9, the Rays were 10 and 10. And yet we look at Seattle and Tampa differently because you get so caught up in, in the Jays lens. So um, you just, you don't know what you're going to get with Barrios. Yeah. Um, like last night. Yeah. And, you know, they're saying it's a blip, whatever. Um, and they're now giving Gosman an extra day, which is smart. He's not going to pitch until Saturday. And then he's going to get an extra day before his next start against Boston. So all that is good. It's they're a, they're a hard group to figure out, mm-hmm. and, uh, but I bet that there are a lot of teams other than the Dodgers and the Astros, um, maybe Atlanta. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a lot of teams that are in the Mets. You would say that about, but in the American League, just Houston is the team that really kind of stands out to you. No, no, I I totally agree, and um, I think. Uh, it'll definitely be interesting to see how they, they do in the playoffs, hopefully well. But um, I, I wanted to ask maybe just a quick, quickly, if you don't mind, how long do you think this Jays team's window for contention is? If you could touch on that a little bit, what you thought. I have no idea. Um, I would think for a little while, you have Gosman locked up long-term, you have Barrios locked up long-term, you have Manoa under team control for a while now. Live for a couple more years. Um, but you, like win when you can because you never know. Yeah. You know, you, you start at 0 and 0 next year and a lot of things can happen. Yeah. So yeah. here you do. You got a chance here. Roll with it. Well, yep. And hopefully they do well and you'll be covering that for, I presume, for Sportsnet. So uh, I'll, I'll definitely see your face a lot on my TV uh, in October. Um, to, to move on to uh, some tennis, which you follow a lot um, and you always do the Rogers Cup. I wanted to talk about that piece you had about Federer's retirement on Sportsnet. I, I thought it was a really good, beautiful video essay. And I, what I really loved was that you mentioned how you thought that, or you said that Federer never played a road game. And mm. I, I wanted to know what you thought was so special about Roger Federer. Um, I don't know. Um, you're talking to somebody who wasn't a fan of Roger Federer. Really? Okay. Uh, yeah. I mean, I shouldn't say it wasn't like, I find there is a fawning. There is a worship. Mm-hmm. around Roger Federer that no other athlete has. Mm-hmm. And nobody can quite explain why or it. They just say, oh, it's Roger. Yeah. Um, I just never bought into it. I just, you know, yeah. I who, who, think Novak's a better player. I think Rafa's a better player. They both have more slam wins than Roger. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I have this debate and argue with my dad, who's one of those Roger worshiping at the, uh, at the, the trough people. I'm like, you can only beat who you play. I understand that. Mm-hmm. But among the people, among the opponents, Roger Federer has beaten in a Grand Slam final. Robin Soderling, <laughs> Fernando Gonzalez, Marin Chilich, um, Lynn Hewitt, Frodic. I, I can, yeah, I maybe can. even Albandian. Maybe. Um, That's a good question. I don't. Yeah. It, and then you think about who Novak and Rafa have had to beat along the way. Yeah. And um, so Roger Federer is the most significant um, figure in the history of men's tennis. He's the most important. He's made a lot of people a lot of money, a lot of other players a lot of money, mm-hmm. a lot of tournament directors and a lot of national federations. When Roger would come to Montreal or Toronto, Toronto especially, the ticket sales mm-hmm. that week would be anywhere from $750,000 to $900,000 more than the years in which he didn't play. Wow. So nobody moved the needle like Roger Federer did. And nobody had the impact that Roger Federer had. But I don't think he's the greatest to ever do it because I think they're the two guys that he went up against in his era are better than him at tennis. Mm-hmm. But I guess it just all depends on how you kind of look at things. Yeah. To, to go off that, obviously he just retired and Alcaraz is coming up and he seems like the next one, kind of the next generational player. And, um, I know Jonathan also mentioned that you thought that Alcaraz and Kyrgios are really good for the game. Could you kind of expand on that? Tennis, men's tennis and women's tennis is in huge trouble right now. Massive trouble. Who is moving the needle? Who is going to draw any, but any eyeballs to go watch that product? You're a tennis fan, Alex. Yes. The person who lives down the street from you, who is the casual sports fan, who can they name in the sport? Right. And this, herein lies the issue. For a generation, it was Borg and McEnroe and Connors, and then it became Federer and Nadal, and to lesser extent, Djokovic and Murray. Curios is the best thing to happen to tennis, and all they're trying to do is silence him and bury him and, and quash him. This is what the sport needs. In an, he's got almost 4 million Instagram followers. Yep. This is what people want right now. That's the appetite of the game. Tennis is, you, you look at the demographics of the sport, it is old. They need figures like Curios. They need electric stars like Alcaraz to get people's attention. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like the establishment of that institution not the game, not the league, it's not the ATP, it's, it's the slams, it's the federations. For some reason, they're still trying to live in prim and proper 1977. Mm-hmm. Um, not happening. So that, that, that's my kind of rant and hot take. No, 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 that's good. I, I, get, I, have, I have one more question uh, about tennis before I let you off. I, and, and, and the questions about Felix and obviously I, I'm a big Canadian tennis fan. I know you are. And yeah. he lost to Sun Wu Kwan. I hope I said his name right. The Davis cup. 
And you tweeted that you thought it was the most brutal loss of his in years. I, I felt like that five times this year where he just played a dud and then he came back and beat Alcaraz and, and Canada made the Davis cup quarters as much about Felix as it was Vashik possible, but that's another point. No, it was more, it was more Vashik than it was Felix. Yeah. yeah. But what do you think about Felix's game right now? I think Felix is going to end up winning four slams, five slams in his career. I think he's going to end up becoming the most decorated um, Canadian tennis player ever, eventually. I mean, uh, you know, you can have a debate right now who's the most decorated. Is it Nestor? Is it Bianca? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it Milos who got to a Wimbledon final and three in the world? Um but I think Felix is the best of the bunch. I think Felix is the is the greatest. Uh, you know, if he stays healthy and all that, he's going to go down as the greatest tennis player ever. No, what is he right now? Uh, he's dropped a bit to close. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, but he's close. Yeah, he's somebody who still overthinks things. He's still somebody who still gets tight in situations. He's still somebody whose second serve abandons him at certain situations. And then you look at how young he is and you're saying to yourself, okay, yeah, well, he'll come. It'll be just a matter of time. Yeah. Um, It'll be fine. So who else is coming? Yeah. Not anyone from Canada, it seems like. Uh, Well, not even that. I'm just saying in the world. Like this year, Casper Ruud has been to two of the four slam finals. And he's a solid player, but him being two in the world, even Alcaraz being world number one is crazy right now. Although there's the Djokovic stuff and... The rankings, rankings right off. Yeah, they don't matter this year, especially with Wimbledon. And number everything. one in the world is Novak. Number two in the world is Kyrgios. Number three in the world is Alcaraz. Yeah. If we really want to talk about what the level of the best players in the world this year have been, mm-hmm. who was better, other than Novak, than Kyrgios from June 1st to September 1st sustainably? Yeah, yeah. And, and obviously with Wimbledon and the Russia, like there's no ranking points and it's all, it's all in Medvedev. And anyways, um, just to wrap this up, I wanted to know, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, I just wanted to basically plug you. Is there anything that you're working on or that people should kind of stay tuned for and what's next for you? Uh, what's next is this Blue Jays playoff uh, push. I, I mean, I'm doing this from the hotel in Tampa right now. I'm going to head over to the trap. And uh, come October, it's going to be MLB playoffs. And uh, away we go. I just today, I just reposted uh, my kind of career look back on Roger Federer and his impact um, on the game. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's out there. And besides that, Alex, appreciate the time, man. Well, thank, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, behind the play listeners, we'll have some cool guests coming up. So stay tuned. And thank you so much, Arash, for doing this and taking the time. See you, Alex.